Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to give you, the, give you the Word of God in your lap so you can follow along with us, read it for yourself. We'll just, uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand real quick. And then if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we are starting a new series today that I've entitled Thrive. Everybody say Thrive. There we go. Yeah, now we're, now we're talking here. Let's go. Uh, literally, the word means to grow vigorously, to prosper, to progress towards or realize a goal. Listen to this. Despite or because of circumstances. Isn't that beautiful? Despite or because of circumstances. So oftentimes, man, we think when circumstances come in our lives, particularly negative ones, we love positive ones. Man, we can really grow when we got some positive circumstances coming in our life. But when the negative circumstances come, we think like, man, this is a real, uh, this really stunts my growth. You couldn't be any wronger, if that is a word, (laughs) couldn't be any wronger, and I'm that guy that will say that, uh, than that. I mean, history in the church would prove you wrong over and over and over again. If you've ever read the, the um, Fox's Book of Martyrs, then you will know that negative circumstances actually are an incubator for spiritual growth. It's, an, it's like the greenhouse for, for you and I to grow. We think that the enemy is after us, and we think that God, you know, why am I experiencing these negative circumstances? Because God wants you to grow. That's why. He's allowing these things. He doesn't orchestrate the negative circumstances. Uh, maybe sometimes he does. He can. But the enemy is going to try and do different things, bring negative situations into our life because we are, we are I'm going to say it, I don't mean to offend you, but we're fairly fickle. And so when we, when we get negative circumstances in our life, we think like, oh, how could this happen to me? And the Lord says, oh, watch this, though. Watch, I'm going to use this circumstance to grow you in greater bounds than you, you could ever go any other way. So what the enemy means for evil, God what? Means for good, right? And so we know this over and over and over. The scriptures declare that to us. And that's why we can uh, claim Romans 8.28 upon any circumstance in our lives that God works together uh, for the good, everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Every situation has a good outcome whether you recognize it or not. God is at work in every circumstance and situation. And I know that there are difficult things that we go through. I've gone through difficult things. You've gone through difficult things. But I can tell you right now that I have grown as a result. And so have you. You're here. You're here right now. God is doing a work in your life. You're saying, hey, I want more of you, Lord. So whatever circumstances have come into your life to push you closer to God, praise the Lord, man. Because that's oftentimes what we need. This is the very thing that we're going we're gonna to consider as we look at this church in Thessalonica, this Greek city. 
It's the modern city currently. It's one of the you know, it's one of these biblical cities that is actually still around today. It's called Thessaloniki. And you can go over there. You can check it out. There's the ruins of the old biblical, uh, you know, Thessalonica. And then there is the, the modern Thessaloniki. And, you know, you can go enjoy it. My son and I were looking at some pictures last night on that, the, the ruins of Thessalonica. And we're looking at some of the modern day things there. And, man, if you ever get a chance to go over there, do it. I'm, I, that's one of my goals. That's the bucket list for me. The footsteps of Paul Tour through Europe and, and see, you know, as he went on his missionary journey, just to sort of follow that path. Hopefully one of these days I'll be able to do that. But, but, but the, the, the church in Thessalonica was a thriving church. It was thriving as a result of persecution. So this church from the get-go, we're going to see in a moment, was like incredibly persecuted. Like Paul, Paul was on his second missionary journey, and he was, you know, ministering and all, and, and it came to a place in Acts chapter 16 where he was, the Holy Spirit forbid him to go to Asia. So he started praying, Lord, what do you, where do you want me to go? That's always a good thing to do, by the way, when you're, you're facing closed doors. It's like, Lord, I'm obviously not trying to go your route. Will you help me understand? And so he prays, and remember, he has a vision of a Macedonian man that says, come and help us. So he says, clearly the Lord wants us to go to Macedonia. So he gets on a ship, and he, he's, he's bound for Macedonia, and he comes to the biggest city of Macedonia. I mean, if you're going to go, go big, right? So he just goes to the biggest city, and he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring the gospel. And he meets some ladies there, this lady particularly named Lydia that he shares the gospel with, and, and she gets saved, and, and things are going well. Paul is there for just a short period of time, and there's this slave girl that continues to follow him and Silas and and, and Timothy, and she is saying, you know, these are the servants of the Most High God, and Paul literally gets irritated, and he turns around, and he casts the spirit out from her. She was demon-possessed. Problem, because that demon was a profit center for the man that owned the slave. So she was a, a... someone who was a fortune teller who was making this guy tons of money. So, as you know, he gets thrown in prison. He and and Silas are singing at midnight. Who knows where Timothy is at that point, Uh, you know, but (laughs) he's probably hanging out with Lydia. Who knows? But, uh, um, whoa, wait a second. Not like that. That's not what I meant, but, you know. So, (laughs) Paul and Silas start to sing at midnight, and that earthquake happens, and, you know, the the jail doors open, and, and... nobody leaves their cells, but the, the prison guard wakes up and he sees all these doors open. He goes, dude, I'm, I am, like, I'm not just going to lose my job. Like, I'm going to lose my life because that's the way that it worked in that culture. And so he was getting ready to kill himself, and Paul steps out. Whoa, don't kill yourself, man. We're all here. And so he hears the gospel, takes Paul to his household. His whole, entire household gets saved. Okay, so Paul then moves from Philippi right after that. And he goes to Thessalonica. Now, what was typical for Paul was to find a synagogue. If there was no synagogue, then he would find a place where people gathered. But in this particular city, Thessalonica, there was a synagogue. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 17 that he went into the synagogue and he started to reason with them. It says literally he persuaded them with the scriptures, the scriptures being the Old Testament. He was persuading these Jews about 
Jesus Christ. He said, listen, let me show you from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah, number one, that he was supposed to die, that he was supposed to be crucified on the cross, suffer, be buried, and then he will rise again from the dead. It's all there. So he persuades these Jews, and, and some of them, it says, believed. You know, during that time, he was there for just a few weeks, maybe. Uh, he, he, the, the gospel went into the synagogue, and then it went into the city. And, and, and there were many prominent Gentiles that became believers. And this birth, this church in Thessalonica, well, the, the problem was that not everybody was as enthusiastic about the gospel as the folks that believed in it. So you had these, these Jews, literally, the, probably the religious leaders that heard the, the, Paul bring the, the scriptures and di didn't disagreed with his interpretation of them. And so they started to persecute the church. They looked for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They couldn't find them, so they go to a dude named Jason's house. And, and Jason was a believer. They drug him out before the city officials along with a few other people who were prominent believers in that, in that city, and they started, and they said this about them. In Acts chapter 17, verses 6 through 7, it says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, Thessalonica was a Roman city. It wasn't Roman-occupied but it was under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. It was what was referred to as a free city. What that means is that this city was self-governed, that it was able to, you know, it, it, could, it could run its own city with its own people and all of that, but, but here's the caveat. So long as there was peace in the city, if, if, if there started to be a ruckus, then the Romans would just come in and take it over. And, and of course, the citizens of Thessalonica didn't want that to happen. And so what, what not only happened was these Jews started to persecute the Christians, but so did the government in that city. They, they began to also persecute the Christians. So they had two people, two different people, uh, religious and governmental, coming at them, bringing persecution down on them. What does that sound like? Does that sound familiar to you? Like, that is exactly where we're at, too. I don't know if you've been listening to some of the debates going on here recently, but do you know that the Democratic Party is, is, is speaking against 5013C corporations, which who cares if we lose our 5013C uh, license, you know, at the end of the day, because that won't censor the gospel. But if the gospel gets censored, that's a problem, and we will ultimately have to pay the price for that. And so, you know, we're not, we're not really political people, but we stay in tune with what's going on in our culture, and we know that there are messages being spoken, and there are laws currently uh, in place to sort of censor the gospel, to censor churches, to stop Christians from being churches. Well, I mean, honestly, statistically speaking, they really don't have to do that because most Christians don't share their faith anyway. But, you know, I mean, that's the reality. It's sad, sad to say, but... You know, but that's what they're trying to do. So this church just got birthed. Paul had to leave within a few weeks after the church was planted without any real discipleship. And yet, the church was thriving. Paul leaves Thessalonica at night or something, escapes out of there, him and Silas and Timothy, 
and they go to Berea, and you know the story there, man. There are Jews there. They care about what God's word says. They're not concerned about their own feelings about what God's word says. They care about the scriptures. And so they're, they're, re, they're, they're hungry to see what, what he's saying and does it match up with the word. And they're searching throughout it. This is the kind of people we want to be. Uh, we, we don't want to just receive stuff. We want to be Bereans. We want to take it through the filter of scripture. Does this what the scripture really says? Listen, the same Holy Spirit that's speaking through this pulpit will speak to you in your home when you have your Bible open and he will tell you the same thing. He's, he's not the author of confusion. And so these Bereans were searching the scriptures. People were, were very encouraged. And then what happened was these, these Jews from Thessalonica that were angry with Paul heard he was in Berea, and he, they came down there and they did the same thing. Started to rise. So Paul is shipped off to Athens. He tells Timothy and Silas, hey, meet me over there. Uh, we don't know all the, all the intricacies. There's sort of a a blind spot in that moment in Scripture because it picks it up where Paul ends up in Corinth and, and Timothy and Silas meet him in Corinth. Or they, they, maybe they can't, he told them to come to Athens. Maybe they came to him. And then what we do know is Timothy went back to Thessalonica. When he went back to Thessalonica, he gained some intel on how this church was doing now. It had only been going for about a year, probably about a year and he came back and met Paul in Corinth, and this is where Paul writes this letter, in the city of Corinth. Now, I just find it interesting that I just came from Las Vegas, which is the modern-day city of Corinth, and I was preparing my message there. So there's definitely a correlation, you know. But um, <laughs> here, here's the thing. This, this letter is perhaps the very first letter Paul ever wrote. It's certainly the earliest uh, letter that we have from Paul. And so this would be one of the very first letters that he would write to any church. And so he writes to these believers in Thessalonica. Stand with me, and we're going to read chapter 1, and we're going to look at what Paul said to these believers. First Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, who is Silas, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work, or remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Kai, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Father, we thank you for your word. 
this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would use this letter that was written nearly 2,000 years ago to speak into our lives this morning. Lord, will you encourage us to be steadfast, to be faithful with the entrusted gospel. Will you help us, Lord, this morning to be honest with ourselves as your spirit speaks to us? Will you help us to apply your word and to allow it to do its effective work in us, to shape us and make us more like Jesus? Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We ask for you to teach us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I jumped the gun on that, but I'm going to finish my introduction. <laughs> the purpose of the letter is multifaceted. Like, why is Paul writing this letter to the Thessalonica believers? Um, He's writing to them to encourage them. Again, they're being persecuted. He, he's not going to, uh, he, he, he doesn't want the circumstances that they're facing to stop the gospel from going forward. And so he tells them in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 through 8, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor had been in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long, long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in, our, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you were standing fast in the Lord. So, he tells them, hey, man, I, I, I want to encourage you to, to continue on. Your faith is being spoken of. Timothy says, man, you guys are doing well, so keep going. So he's, he wants to, the, the primary purpose is to remind them to thrive in the midst of their circumstances, to not allow those things to kill the gospel going forward, but to allow them to propel the gospel to go forward. So that's the main reason. But secondly, he also addresses some ministerial integrity where people are speaking against Paul and his, his message that he is sort of this, uh, you know, about himself and he's trying to gain monetary, or get monetary gain and he's trying to get, you know, notoriety for himself and all these kinds of things. So he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated in Philippi, at Philippi, as, um, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He's saying, man, we're not coming here for our own purposes. We're coming here because the Lord sent us here. We have a message to share, and it's not our message. It is a message from God to you, and he wants you to hear about it. And so he's, he's dispelling some of, these, some of this uh, gossip that's going on about him. Thirdly, 
He also wants to instruct these believers about their importance of, of their walk matching their talk. And so three times in, in, this, in these uh, verses, Paul reminds the, these guys to walk worthily, to, please, to walk in a way that would please God, and to walk properly towards those outside. So we're gonna, he's going to remind them that their walk has to match their talk, which is something we can also apply to our lives. And then fourthly, and finally, Paul wants to address a concern regarding people that have died in this congregation. So they're wondering, like, hey, what happens when you die? Where are those people? They, they, they've, they were only with Paul for a couple weeks. They didn't really get into that. They were kind of focused on the gospel and that Jesus had died and that he rose again from the dead so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to the God of heaven. And yet they hadn't got to a lot of other things such as eschatology, which was something that really these, these two letters will get into about the, about the rapture, talking about when the Lord comes back and all of these things. But, but Paul addresses this in chapter 4. And you know these verses because you've probably heard them. They're some of the most famous verses in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you, and speaking about asleep being dead, that you may not grieve as others who do not have, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Uh, that, that we, for the Lord himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Hallelujah. Then we who are alive, who will be left, will be caught up together with him, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he tells them, listen, it's not over. When people die, they're with the Lord. And listen, by the way, when the Lord comes back, he's going to resurrect them. And then those who are alive will also be caught up together with them. And that's what we're waiting for. And we are longing for that. But Paul wants to remind them, hey, listen, when people die, they're with the Lord. But, but understand that there is a resurrection that will happen. You'll see it. If you're alive, and if you are alive, you'll also be caught up together with him if you're a believer. And so he's speaking about the rapture, and we'll, we'll get into all of this, um, this here later, but, but he wants to remind them about the need. Listen, to th <laughs> he wants to remind them about the idea that Jesus is coming back. And this is one of those things that the church needs to constantly uh, keep in the forefront of your mind that Jesus will return. So oftentimes, we, we, this is one of those things that we think is like a fairy tale, like it's, oh, well, that would be nice if he would come now, but as if we're, we're, gonna, we're waiting for him. He is coming, folks. And, and, and especially in this modern-day church, I hear oftentimes people saying, yeah, but people have been saying that for years. That's exactly where the enemy wants you. Oh, people have been saying that for you. You know what that's called? Let me tell you, unbelief. That's what that's called. I, I hate to call you out, but that is called unbelief. The Bible teaches that Jesus is coming back. This should be something that we are, we are eagerly waiting upon. 
we're longing for. And listen, it, it, no one knows the day or the hour, but Jesus gave us some, 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 sim, some symbols to look for, some things in our culture to look for. Particularly, he said, just watch Israel. Israel, listen, was not even a nation from AD 70 to May 14, 1948. It wasn't even a nation. So, of course, that was one of those things that had to happen first. There's never been a generation you know, that, that is closer to, the, to Christ returning than the generation that's living from May 14, 1948 to now. Listen, Jesus is coming back. Israel, he said, just watch Israel. When, 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 it, when Israel starts to get tender, you know, they're like the fig tree, and you see the, the branches getting tender, the leaves coming out, you know that fruit's coming. He said, you watch Israel, and you're going to see me come in that way. Same way. And he's, he's going to talk to, he talks about, you know, Daniel talks about it, this peace treaty in Daniel chapter 9. And we can get into all of this right now. We, we could get into it, but we're not going to because we got to stay right here. But um, it's in the Bible, and he's telling people, be, listen, be steadfast in this thought that Jesus is coming back. He's coming. So what is that supposed to do? A, keep you accountable. B, it should propel you to bring the gospel to people because we don't know when that's going to happen. We want to see our loved ones get saved. We want to see our neighbors get saved. We want to see as many people, as much as the enemy is trying to take as many people to hell, we should be trying to take as many people to heaven with us. And that thought about Jesus coming should be at the forefront of your mind every morning saying Jesus could come back right now. He could. He could. Like, we're not waiting prophetically for anything really else to happen other than the patience of God, the long-suffering of God waiting. But how? But one day, that will be over. The age of grace will close, and the Lord will bring the age of wrath. He will bring his wrath down upon the world. That will be known for seven years. It will be called the tribulation period. And uh, you don't want to be here for that. We believe we teach a pre-tribulation rapture, which we'll get into in chapter 4, but, you know, you don't want to be there. You don't want to be on this earth when God unleashes his wrath, when he brings down judgment. He's telling these believers that they need to thrive in their circumstances that they need to be encouraged by the thought that Jesus is coming back. He says, encourage one another with these words. should encourage you this morning. We're going to look at how the gospel works in a person's life this morning in chapter 1. It transforms. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. I.e., it will transform your life if you let it. The difference between somebody who has heard the gospel and received the gospel is transformation, folks. Many, many people hear it. Jesus died for you. He was buried for you. He rose again from the dead for you. Cool. But you got to receive it. That's when you actively take hold of the gospel you bow your knees to Jesus and you say, you are my king. So many people are stuck in the hearing part in our culture. They've heard the gospel, 
The question is, have they received it? If you've received it, you will know it. You will know it because your life will be transformed. The Bible says if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old has passed away. He's become new. How can you, be, how can you go from being dead to alive and not know? Like, oh, man, was I, did, am I, I'm the same, if you're the same person, transformation has not happened. And, you know, we have to be careful that, that we, we're not looking for salvation in a prayer. Because salvation is not found in a prayer. It's found in a person. It's found in Jesus Christ. And you have to make him the Lord of your life, not just pray a prayer. You have to literally bow your knees. You have to hand over your life to him. You have to surrender. And we're going to talk about that at the end of this um, sermon, that it's all about his lordship. It's all about his lordship. And that's what keeps people from, that, from being receivers of the gospel. Because they hear it, but they will not bow their knee to Jesus and make him their Lord. And the Bible says if you, if you want to be saved, you have to confess. The first thing you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is your God, that there is no other God before you, that you are, you are submitting to him, that you are surrendering to him. And when you do that, when you really do that, your life transforms. And that's what we're going to look at. That's what happened in this church when Paul showed up with the gospel. He told these people about Jesus, and many, many people heard the gospel, but only a few received it. And so some people were being transformed. Other people were not. And that's the same in our culture today. There's three things that I want to show you from this passage that, that, that will, will demonstrate transformation. We're, we're, you see, when, when you are transformed by the gospel you will see that it will happen outwardly, it will happen inwardly, and it will happen outwardly. You, these three specific things. First, we're going to look at how the message that transforms demonstrates itself outwardly. Verse 1, Paul, Savinus, and Timothy, to the church at Thessalonica, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you. Constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and, the, and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a typical intro for Paul, uh, verse, verse 1 there, where he, 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 he demonstrates, hey, this is the author. I'm the author, Paul. Timothy and Silas are with me. We are writing to the church of Thessalonica. Listen to this. In, in this is the authority that he's coming in. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is coming in the authority of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not coming in his own authority. When you go and declare the gospel to somebody, you are not coming in your own authority. You're coming in the authority of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he wants you to know that. If you're a Bible student here, you, you want to be interested to note that when Paul says the phrase, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, in the ancient Greek, it's structured to say they are the same. What he's saying is God the Father and Jesus Christ, if you were to position them on a, you know, on a whatever, a, 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 a structure of sorts, they would be identical. They would be side by side because God the Father and Jesus Christ are God, equal. And that's what he's saying. Structurally, that's the way that this is written. And I think that's interesting. 
There are so many passages that refer to Jesus and God being equal. This is one of them. And you have to study the Bible to know these kinds of things. So you get in the Word. But he, t- he tells us, I'm coming in this authority. And, and he goes on to tell them uh, just this common greeting, grace to you and peace. Now, it's, it's, it's Paul's way of saying hello to the Greeks and hello to the Hebrews. So to the Greeks, he says grace. To the Hebrews, he says uh, peace, shalom. So if you're in, if you're in Israel, you're going to hear people say what? Shalom. That means peace. If you're in Greece, you're going to hear people say grace, grace. And that, that, that means kind of hello to you. There's a theological uh, um, teaching within Paul's structure here as well. Here it is. You will never experience the peace of God until you experience the grace of God. It's always grace first. It will, you never get to peace until you receive grace. That's why religious people are not at peace. They're not at peace because they don't have the peace of God within them. Why? Because they're working their salvation out on their own. They have not embraced grace. And, and, and the gospel is what? It's the gospel of grace first before it becomes the gospel of peace. You have to receive the grace of God. You need the grace of God. He's extended his unmerited favor to you. He's saying, you're a sinner, but here's salvation. That's grace. And he says, when you receive it, you'll get my peace. So it's grace and then peace. And then he goes on to to give us these three specific attributes of transformation in the believer's life outwardly. He says that these believers, man, he's thanking them. He's constantly making mention of the prayers. Why? Because these these believers are, are, are transformed. They're, they're showing their faith outwardly through their work of faith, through their labor of love, and through their steadfastness of hope. These three things will be present in any person's life who has believed in the gospel. You will have faith that works. You will have love that labors, and you will have hope that endures. You will. You will. This comes inherently with the Holy Spirit when you receive him. Why do you think when Jesus was walking the face of the earth, he talked about faith? And he said, man, this is a faithless generation. He talked about, I've never seen faith such as the centurion who believed in Jesus, right? I've never seen faith in any of this generation. He talked about faith, the importance of believing without seeing. That is an element of of the attribute of the Holy Spirit in your life, faith. The love. How much did Jesus talk about love? He said, man, I'm going to talk about love so much that unless you, you know, that, that love will become the, 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 the thing that you can see outwardly in a person's life to see if they're really a disciple of mine. They will love. There'll be a labor involved in that. And then he talks about the need for hope. For hope. To endure till the end, to stay hopeful. Jesus said, he who endures till the end, what, will be saved. That endurance in hope. First, Paul recognizes their faith that works. This is the exact same thing that James said, right? He said, listen, people in, in, in this culture, you know, they said, oh, I, I've got faith. Well, what does that mean? Like, that's a buzzword. What, that's a Christianese, you know, word that... that may or may not mean anything. 
what do you mean by faith? And then James would define for us, well, you mean works, right? Faith that works. He said, show me your faith and I'll show you my works. What is he saying? Not salvation comes. It comes by grace through faith, but that faith will demonstrate itself in works. You will have some evidences of your transformation through your faith because it will cause you to work. And Paul says, I recognize that about this church. They are a people of faith. How do I know that? Because they have works. Because they have works. How great is your faith? All you got to do is look at your works. That's how great your faith is. How great is my faith? Well, what are you doing for the Lord? Where have you stepped out? Where are you walking on the waves? That's how great your faith is. You can't just say, oh, man, I know, I know the Bible and all of these kinds of things, but you never walk it out. That's not faith. Faith is literally taking steps that you have no idea if there's going to be anything underneath your feet when you take it. That's faith that works. Faith that works. He goes on, he says, man, you guys are people that are loving. How do I know you're loving? Because you're laboring for one another. They, they weren't sitting on their hands. When, when Timothy showed up, like these guys were loving on each other. And the kind of love that he's talking about is a love that is sacrificial. He's not talking about a, hey, how's it going, buddy? You know, kind of love where it's, it's just a, it's a friendship kind of love or just a casual kind of love. No, he's talking about an intense kind of love that would give your life up for the other person. That's the kind of love that he's speaking about. That's the kind of love that Jesus had for us. And Jesus told us that this is the kind of love that you will demonstrate if you are my disciple. John chapter 13, verse 35. By, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. Again, it's an outward evidence of an inward transformation that's taken place. And John also wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, he said, we know that we have passed out of death into life because what? We love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. Love labors. Love labors, church. How do I know I'm a Christian? Is your love laboring? That's not how you become a Christian. That's the evidence that you are a Christian. Is, are you loving? Jesus said you're going to be loving. And that love is going to, it's going to, you know, it's going to demonstrate itself. Thirdly, he talks about a hope that endures. This isn't a passive kind of hope. This isn't a man, I hope this happens. You know, I really hope that we have, you know, spaghetti tonight. No, I don't. But we really hope that, you know, all of these kind of things. No, it's not that kind of hope. It's not a, it's a for sure understanding. It's a steadfastness that believes in what it's hoping for. It's active. It's going after it. That's the kind of hope that he's speaking about. He, it's the kind of hope that Paul spoke about in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where he said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. He's talking about a hope that is aggressively waiting for the appearing of Jesus Christ. Like, we're going to endure. It doesn't matter what comes our way. We're going to just 
endure through it until Jesus comes. We're waiting on him. What this means is that when persecution comes or when, when, when difficult circumstances come into your life, you don't stop being a Christian. You don't stop going, well, I guess I don't have to share the gospel now. God would understand. Well, maybe God's got you in that situation to share the gospel with the people around you. Maybe it's simply to speak the gospel without saying a word, just the way that you deal with your circumstance as you're walking through it. There is no more powerful witness than the witness of somebody who faithfully goes through pain, i.e., Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. Listen, his message was powerful out there when he was speaking the word to people, and he was teaching the word, but his, his message was way more powerful when he was hanging on the cross and he was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Your testimony will be far more powerful to the people around you when you're going through difficult situations. They're watching you. They want to see, does this person really believe? Is he really going to continue to hope and endure to the end? That doesn't mean that we, 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 we don't get sad. It doesn't mean any of that. Does, oh, I'm just going to, oh, I'm a Christian. You know, I don't, I don't feel, no, that's ridiculous. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody that says, man, this sucks. I am hurting deeply. Like I am being crushed, but I still have hope. Jesus Christ is my hope. And, and it is still holding on to Jesus. If that's all you can do, then keep holding on. So oftentimes we just let go and we wallow. No, you got to hold on to him, man. That's what this is speaking about. So th th this, this church was, 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 was demonstrating its transformation outwardly by the way that, that they were interacting with each other and the culture around them. Not only, but do we see that this transformation demonstrates itself outwardly, but it also wrecks us beautifully inwardly. Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men you proved to be among you for your sake. Uh, we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were convinced, hands down, about the salvation of these believers, and that's why they say, for we know. We know that we know that we know that we know that the gospel has come to you people. You are loved by God, number one. He sent us to you like, like we were somewhere else. We were trying to go somewhere else, but God sent us to you. That suggests that he loves you. You are loved, brothers, but not only that, and more importantly, you are chosen. And we don't like that word in church. So many, you know, we, we want to focus on, well, well, what does it mean chosen? Like, like, you mean God selected people? That's exactly what it means. But here's the deal, is that that's what one, one, one part of Scripture says. And in fact, in the book of Ephesians, it tells us that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. I like what D.L. Moody said. He said, <laughs> I'm glad God chose me before the foundation of the world because if he would have chose me after I started living, he probably wouldn't have done it. But, you know, uh, <laughs> pretty funny. But, but here's the reality is that you are chosen, and I don't care if you like it or not. That's what the Bible says. You're chosen. Do we fully grasp what that means? Not really. 
and, 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 and you know, there are, there, are, there are people that take it way far to the left and they say, well, no, that means that God made some people to go to hell and some people to go to heaven. And then there's people that go all the way over to the other side that say, no, God, um, God, is, God has allowed us to choose him. The Bible says that he chose us. Like, God, everything in the Bible suggests that God has always taken the first step to you. You love him because why? He first loved you. He chose you. You didn't choose him. Jesus said that. You didn't choose me. I chose you. So that's, that's the reality. He chose you. Whether you like it or not, you're chosen. So, but, but there is the other reality that we have to understand, that Scripture also teaches that there is a responsibility on your behalf to respond to the fact that you're chosen. You have to respond to that. You can't come to God unless you're chosen. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said in John 6, you cannot come to me unless the Father who sent me draws you. You can't come unless you're chosen. But if you're chosen, you got to come. And so uh, Paul, uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, he says, man, for many are called, but few are chosen. Only a few will, will respond to the fact that they're chosen. Believe, you know, there is an invitation in what Jesus said there. Salvation is offered to all. No one will stand before God and say, you didn't offer me salvation. No, he did. He did. For many are called, but few are chosen. So how does all that work? To be honest with you, I don't know. And I'm okay with that. And you should be okay with that. Here's the reality is, if you have come to Christ, then you were chosen. If you have accepted the invitation that Christ has come, then you are the, 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 the many that the extension of salvation has come to, which, and then you have received it. I have a hard time believing that God would create some to go to heaven and some to go to hell personally. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When God was thinking about salvation from Genesis chapter 3, he was thinking about the world. He was thinking about everybody. And in fact, when you look at the chosen nation of Israel, why were they chosen? Because they were the smallest, because they were the weakest, so that everybody would know that it's God who's doing the work. And what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. It wasn't that they were the ones that were chosen and everybody else was going to hell. It was that God was using them to be a light to everyone else. That, that makes probably about as much sense as what it says right there, but praise the Lord, right? Listen, you cannot cut these kinds of things out of the Bible even if you don't understand them. You're chosen. And if you're chosen, it will be evident. How does he know that they're chosen? He says, because the, the, the word didn't just come to you in, uh, verbally. It didn't just come in word, but it came in power. And then the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's how I know. That's how I know that because I watched God just come and totally transform your lives when I started to tell you about Jesus. That's how I know you're chosen. I saw the power of God working through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it brought conviction into your heart. Remember when Peter stood up in Acts chapter 2, and he started to talk about Jesus? When 3,000 people got saved? 
Do you know what their response to the gospel was? Conviction. They literally tore their shirts and they said, what must we do to be saved? That is the power of the gospel in a person's life. That should be the response of anyone who is receiving the gospel is the idea that, man, your sin is so great. Like your sin, you've mounted up a debt that there is, it's impossible for you to pay. Like you should be buried by your sin. Not, I'm semi a good person. Like you should be flat on your face like I can't bear the burden. And that might not happen in this moment, but I'll tell you, it will happen to you. If you've received the gospel, there will be a full conviction. I remember when I got saved, I reached out to God in desperation from fear because I didn't want to go to hell. And I was like, I want heaven. A couple weeks later, that conviction fell upon me at 5 a.m. in the morning as I was driving to the gym, and I listened to a song by Third Day, and I recognized he was talking about me. I am a thief. I am a murderer walking up this lonely hill. And, and he's talking about Jesus going to the cross. And he's talking about the two guys that deserved the condemnation that he was going to get. But he did it for them. And God helped me recognize that I was one of them in that moment. That full conviction will come upon you. You will recognize your sin before God. And that's what the free, that's, what, that's why it's such an incredible, liberating moment when you recognize the debt was satisfied by Jesus on the cross, man. You owe nothing. He paid it all. Like, you don't have to do a single thing. He did it all for you. How incredible is that? Paul said, how do I know? Because I've seen this over and over and over again. How can you say that you're a disciple of Jesus? How can you say that you've received the gospel, you've never been convicted of your sin, you've never seen the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you've never seen fruit in your life? How can you say, I've received the gospel? You can't. And he's saying, man, when it comes, you'll know it. Because it won't come in just word, and there's plenty of that going out today. Just, just say the prayer. Just say the prayer, man. And I'm not against that. I think that there is a prayer that needs to be said. There is the idea that you need to recognize that you're a sinner before God, receive salvation, believe, confess Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Yes. But not because you don't, you know, the, 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 the reason you're doing it matters. It matters. I'm just going to get the golden ticket, and that's it. God knows the motive. He sees the heart. Paul said, man, these guys were transformed. How does he know? How, what was that transformation look like? Look at verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living, God, the living and true God. How do you know? Because these people were repentant. They were repentant. They turned from their idols, and they went the direct opposite way. Like they were, they were serving this God, and then they turned, and they were serving this God. That's how he knew that they were chosen, how transformation had happened. He goes on, and, and, and they were also waiting for his son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There was also this expectation that Jesus is coming back. Like that was the evidence of their salvation. Like I'm waiting for Jesus. There was that hope. And we'll talk about this later, but he did deliver you from the wrath to come. These, these people had the evidence of transformation in their lives, not only outwardly, not only inwardly, but also onwardly. Look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Wow. Wow. The gospel had made such an impact in their life that Paul and Silas and Timothy are out of a job. Like, we, we don't even need to tell. People already hear about the gospel because they've heard about you. Like, we enter a town and it's like, hey, have you heard about those Thessalonicas? Not Paul, not Silas, not Timothy, but these believers in Thessalonica. The gospel had come not just in word, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, in full conviction, and they're sounding forth. You know what that word means? It's like playing a trumpet, like in the <laughs> like 5 a.m. kind of trumpet when everybody's sleeping. You know, everybody can hear it, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but all over the place. Their faith was being, was literally a sound, was a trumpet being blasted across the entire continent. Man, don't you want your faith to be spoken of like that? Don't you want to be the kind of believer that, that literally you're not, it's not you doing it, it's just you living out what you've received. It's all about Jesus, but God, God is using these people incredibly to the point that Paul says, man, we don't even have to say anything. How do you get there? How do you get to that place? You know, there are different parts of the body and there are, you know, there are different giftings and all of that, but there is one common theme that every Christian should be about, and it's called the gospel. Every single one of us should be sounding forth our faith. There should be no question where you live, people that really know you, whether or not you're a Christian. Like, they should know. How should they know? By the way that you live your life. By the kinds of things that you say. So I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, man, I don't know if I'm a believer. I don't want to go to hell. I, I want to know that I'm, I, I'm a believer. And I said, well, well, let me ask you, the people that are closest to you, would they say that, you know, you're, you're demonstrating fruit? Probably not. Okay. Um, well, has there ever been a change in your life? Because there are periods of time where we backslide. Has there ever been a change in your life? Well, not really that I can think of, okay? Well, here's the deal. Is I would say if there's never been a change in your life, there's no fruit in your life, that you need to receive Jesus Christ. How can you say that? Because the life speaks for itself. I'm not saying that. Your life is saying that. How do I know? How do I know? There's evidence of your salvation, folks, and... There are periods of time where, you know, you may doubt that. You may wonder, man, I don't know. We get sidetracked. 
But I'll tell you that there are two kinds of people. There are hearers of the gospel and there are receivers of the gospel. And you have to ask yourself, have I truly received the gospel? Or have I just heard it? Do I just know it? Like I could recite it over and over again in my life, but has there been a change in your life? That's the first evidence. Your own personal testimony. Who you were, what happened when Christ came, and who you are now. Was there a life change? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Jesus also said, there'll be a desire in your heart to keep his commands. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What were his commandments? To, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> I.e., that in and of itself is collectively the Ten Commandments. You know that? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The difference between the hearer and the receiver is surrender. It's all about lordship. It's all about lordship. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this time together. We thank you for your word and just for, Lord, the, the testimony of these believers in Thessalonica, Lord, who had not only heard the gospel, but fully received it. And the evidence was in the fact that, that their lives were transformed in three specific ways. Outwardly, inwardly, and onwardly. And Father, we are faced with the question ourselves this morning. Has that same message transformed my life? Am I, Lord, walking in a religious path that has a form of godliness but denies its power? Or am I walking in full transformation because I have received you as Lord of my life? That you are the one that is directing my path. That I am subservient to you. That this life that I call my own is no longer my own, but it belongs to you. And in full surrender, willing to do whatever it is that you would call me to do. God, we need to grow in you. We want to grow in you, Lord. We don't want to be fooled by ourselves. We don't want to be fooled by those around us. We want your Holy Spirit to speak into our lives right now. And you tell us, Lord. We know that our feelings are fake, that they will lead us astray, that there are probably people in this room right now feeling convicted. Am I saved? But they really are because there has been that transformation, and yet there are some here today that are so comfortable and yet have never, ever received you as Lord. And Lord, I know that that breaks your heart because you know the, the end of that. You know where that path goes. 
And so would you just come by the might and power of your Holy Spirit today? Would you move in this place, Lord? Move in this place right now, Lord. Today is the day of salvation. As we continue to pray, and if the Lord is stirring your heart this morning, and you're saying, man, I, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever been transformed. And you're saying, man, I, 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 do, I do love God. I want to... I want to serve him, but you've never crowned him Lord of your life. Then this morning, as we continue to pray, all heads bowed, eyes closed, that you would just lift your hand, and I want to pray with you this morning. And this is the declaration, man. Lifting of your hand is really all that's required here right now because God sees your heart. If you need salvation this morning, will you just raise your hand and say, Lord, I want to receive you this morning. I want to make you the Lord of my life. I don't want to just be a hearer of your word, but I want to be a doer. I want to be somebody that has been transformed. Anyone at all this morning, lift your hand. If you're online, you also can do this. If you're listening on the radio right now, you can also just surrender your life to the Lord. God loves you, and he wants to be with you for all of eternity. But until you bow your knee, he will not allow you to come into his kingdom. So I'll ask you one more time, if that's you, if you're convicted in your heart right now, the best thing to do is to say, Lord, I'm surrendering to you as Lord. Lift your hand. God, thank you, Lord, for once again extending your hand of grace to us. God, this never gets old. It never gets old to hear about the grace of God that's come down for us. Lord, for anyone that's in that state, will you just draw them to yourself? You don't need me. Will you draw them, Lord, in your timing? And we thank you, Father, for the opportunity. I pray that you would strengthen your saints here today, Lord, that the convictions of our heart would make it not just out of this room, Lord, but would make it into our feet, into our hands, into our lips, into our minds. Lord, and that we would be filled with your spirit and that we would be on fire to share the gospel, Lord, until you return. Let us be this church in Thessalonica, Lord, that our faith is a sounding forth for your glory and honor, Lord. We love you. We thank you, God. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.